Perfect. As the rest of them head out, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter number 5 tonight. Mark chapter number 5. And uh, we have been in a, uh, a, a three-month session of our faith groups. And there's going to be rotating type of things that we do. And Pastor prepared his own series for the meantime uh, between these groups. And then he happened to get sick. And so you pray for him tonight. I think we all kind of heard him coming down with something on Sunday night. And it has overtaken him this last week. And so you pray for him. Pray that he does better. And I believe some of his family has it as well. And so they're at home watching live stream tonight. And uh, so we're stuck with me tonight, filling in, and we're going to pick up with where we left off in the book of Mark, as earlier this year we began a series walking through the book of Mark, and we got we finished chapter number four, and we stopped right at the beginning of chapter number five, and so that's where we're going to pick up tonight. We'll do just a, a tiny bit of review to kind of catch some of us up, and as some of you were there during that study, and it might be a little bit of a refresher for you, and this chapter will be somewhat familiar to us as pastor not too long ago, I think maybe two months ago, as we were getting ready for a True Purpose Sunday, preach from this passage. And so some of it will be familiar. I'm going to try my best not to just regurgitate all the wonderful things that he taught us during that sermon. And But I think there will be some new things for us here that we'll be able to find as well. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written, of course, by uh, the individual named Mark, John Mark. And one of his jobs over the first half of the book that he was trying to show us uh, was revealing the identity of Jesus. Now, to the readers, he made it very obvious. In just the opening verses, he tells us very straightforward uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only is he the Messiah, but he is the God of the Old Testament. And he has a bunch of prophecies there in the opening verses of the book of Mark to be able to reveal to us exactly what the identity of Jesus is. But that wasn't the case for all of the people actually in the story of the Gospels. And for many of those people, they didn't understand who Jesus was. And over these first eight chapters, it's slowly being revealed to them the nature or rather the identity of who Jesus is. And uh, Jesus' ministry so far has largely revolved around the northern portion of Israel, a portion or a region called Galilee, and really headquartering out of the city of Capernaum there. And uh, he would often travel out and begin to minister and to be able to do miracles and preach sermons and things in various places and cities and kind of come back to Capernaum there, largely revolving in uh, largely revolving in Galilee. And then we got to chapter number four. And in chapter four, Jesus is preaching to a rather large group of people. And he's preaching on the shores of the large sea, the Sea of Galilee, on the western shore. Uh, he's preaching a message unto them, largely talking about the kingdom of God. And he gives several parables of what the kingdom of God is like, and he tells them all about the kingdom and it being like a mustard seed and a seed that uh, begins to grow, even though it's something small now. And to our eyes, it seems insignificant. It grows into something large and something beautiful and something uh, that is, is productive for us. And he also compares it to another seed that's planted, and the farmer just plants it into the ground, and day after day, it continues to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow from no power of his own, but rather... Uh, it's something else and acting upon that seed, causing it to grow. And he talks about the kingdom of God being like that. And the kingdom of God goes out and it's, uh, it, and it's expanded as we take the gospel message. And as we bring that out to all people and they receive it, the message of the kingdom goes forth. 
And it begins to grow. And, and that happens not because of our own power and our strength, but rather because of the strength of God. And, and so as the kingdom of God is advanced, people look and they're amazed at the things that it was able to do and what it becomes because it wasn't the product of man. It was from the power of God. And tonight, as we look in our story, as Jesus just finished teaching on what the kingdom's like, in chapter number five, he's going to give us a very tangible, a very concrete example of how that works. How this, the, the nature of the kingdom goes forth, and it's like this myster, mysterious type of a thing that it, it, it seems small, and then it turns into something large by God's divine power. And so there's kind of two things that we're going to look for as we look at this first half of chapter number five. On the first part, we're, or on one side, we're kind of going to see Mark revealing a little bit of who Jesus is, uh, showing some of his characteristics and kind of helping some people who had some, uh, maybe, maybe some misconceptions of who Jesus was and straightening some of those out. And on the other side, Mark is going to be giving us a case study in the growth of God's kingdom. And so we'll pray and we'll jump right into verse number one of chapter number five. Dear Lord, I thank you for tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to uh, have an understanding mind as we approach your text. I pray, God, that we would see the truth that you put there for us and that you would help it to be uh, something that would strengthen us and encourage us uh, to live a life pleasing unto you, Lord. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So Jesus just finishes his sermon there on the shores of Galilee. He preaches unto them, night comes, and as it begins to get dark at the end of chapter number four, Jesus tells the disciples, let's get in the boat, we're going to cross to the other side. And this is that wonderful story where the, you know, the storm's coming, Jesus is asleep in the boat, and, and then Jesus calms the sea when all the disciples are freaking out. And well, they end up getting to the other side, and that's where we pick up in chapter number five. Verse number one of chapter number five says this. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. So they go from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to an area known as the Gadarenes. Now, I've got a couple of slides for you here. I like to visualize some of these things. And sometimes if uh, you're reading and you see some locations there in the text, it would be a good idea to look in the back of your Bible. Most of them have an atlas there and some maps. And so, fellas, you throw up the slide that says uh, Israel. and Or rather, throw up the other ones. The one that says the Sea of Galilee, I believe, is is the one there. And this is the Sea of Galilee, and, and it might be a little hard for us to make out some of the words there, but essentially we can see a, a little orange arrow going from the, the northwestern portion of the sea and kind of traveling over to the eastern side, right in the middle. And this is the journey that Jesus takes across the Sea of Galilee into something called the, uh, the area or the region, the nation of the Gadarenes. Now, sometimes what happens is as we're we're reading the Bible, uh, sometimes you maybe might look at a map and you read the story and maybe the name on the map is different than the name in the story. Or sometimes you might read in one gospel and it says one name and then you read another gospel and it says a different name, even though they're talking about the same place. And, and that's not a contradiction, but oftentimes geographical things in the New Testament had various names to them. 
And that was simply because if you lived in one area and you saw a mountain and someone lived on the other side of the mountain and saw the same mountain, you both would probably have different names for the same mountain. And that's kind of what happens here. And so in some of the Gospels, you actually find that it gives a different name. So some of them, you might see it called the region of the Gadarenes. Some of the Gospels are going to call it the uh, country of the uh, Gergesenes. Some of them are going to call it the country of the uh, Gerasenes. There's all these different names for it, but it's all talking about the same place. All of it is talking about that right center portion of the eastern shores of the region of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus begins to go. Now, it's important for us to remember that Jesus, at this part of his ministry, he has already began doing many miracles to the point that his reputation has begun to go out. Now, through the earlier portions of Mark, we saw that there were many crowds who would begin to travel all the way to Galilee just to see what was going on. They heard stories of people being uh, exercised from the demons that they had, heard stories of miracles taking place from paralytics uh, being able to be raised so that they could walk again. All these magnificent stories and people from all over the place had heard and traveled to see this Jesus person. Go up the other slide. Go up the slide that says Israel. Now, again, it's going to be difficult for us to see the particular words, but just looking up the colors of this map, Mark specifically names for us all the groups of people that had traveled to see Jesus. And this is just something I saw today as I was studying this portion. And I found it so interesting. Mark names that people from Tyre and Sidon had came. And that's the region uh, all the way on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, way north of Israel. All those people had come, and not all of them, but a large portion of people had come to see Jesus. Not only that, but uh, just below that, in, the, uh, in that yellow portion, that would be Galilee. Of course, Jesus is traveling all over Galilee. They know who he is. Below that is that blue, uh, Samaria. No one yet from there. And then he goes down to the orange on the bottom, Judea. All kinds of people had come from Judea. South of that is Idumea, which would be like the nation of Edom from the Old Testament. Many people had come to hear Jesus from there. You go over to the green portion, Perea, and that's just the other side of the Jordan River. Lots of people had come to hear Jesus from all of these countries except two of them. The only two regions that nobody had come to hear Jesus. Though, In other words, the message hadn't gotten out to these Two groups yet was number one, Samaria, and number two, the Decapolis. Now, the nation of the Gadarenes was a region in the Decapolis. Gadara, one of the cities, was one of the ten cities that make up the Decapolis. And so Jesus, very intentionally, you'll find as you read the Gospels, goes to two specific regions. In our passage here, he is going to intentionally travel to the Decapolis. You read John chapter number four, and Jesus says this phrase, we must needs go through Samaria. You know what's interesting? The only two places that none of the disciples and none of the people who had heard all the fame of Jesus had taken the message to, these are the places that Jesus very intentionally journeyed and went to to bring the message himself. And so as we see here tonight, as, as Jesus, they, he gets in this boat and, and there's a huge crowd of people there and they get in the boat in the middle of the night and, and they travel and there's this huge storm. It all kind of seems random, but it's anything but random. Jesus is very intentionally coming to this town of Gadara. He's very intentionally arriving at a very specific location that he has selected. So it's no surprise that Jesus ends up in Gadara. You can take that slide down, just go to the the main Mark slide. Verse number two, Mark says this, 
And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had often been bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken to pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. You could imagine there's some suspense that Mark is building here. You could imagine maybe the disciples, this would be a fearful moment for them. Don't forget, this is all taking place in the middle of the night. Jesus got in the boat with the disciples as it began to be evening, and then they travel miles in a boat powered only by hand. It's probably like maybe midnight, one, two in the morning. It's late at night at this point. And they arrive in a country that none of them have probably been to, a region very unfamiliar to them. And as soon as they step off the boat, here comes this maniac out of the tombs, out of, out of a graveyard, out to meet them. You could imagine that they probably were a little taken back, maybe a little fearful as this begins to happen. This man was possessed by demons. Now, we've seen many possessions so far in the book of Mark. One question that people often ask whenever they read about possessions in the Bible or maybe they see something uh, from the media or online or some movie or something like that, and people often wonder, is it possible for a Christian to undergo the same kind of thing that this man went through, a demonic possession? And if we think of possession in the classical sense of being under the control of a demon, of course the answer would be no. You see, the Bible tells us that we are already under the power of a spirit, the Holy Spirit. And from the moment that we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And Jesus tells us actually a couple chapters earlier that if you wanted to go into a house and, and plunder the house, you would first have to bind the strong man. He uses this as a, a metaphor to talk about somebody, a spiritual force is fighting. And certainly if we have Jesus, or the Spirit of God, rather, living within us, nothing would be able to bind him so that they could pillage our house. And so greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But it's also important for us to define our terms. You know, the word possession in the Bible is actually just a verb of the noun demon. It it would be akin to saying demonized. This was a man who had been demonized. And if you look up what this word actually means, It can mean to be under the complete control or power of a demon or under the influence of a demon. And this is where we like to draw a distinction, where it might not be possible for a Christian to come under the control or power of a demonic force. It is certainly possible for us to be influenced. We would say that we cannot be possessed, but we can certainly be oppressed. Demonic influences. And so here what we have is, is Mark is going to give us a very detailed description of not how this man came to receive a demon, but rather what this demonic possession looks like. What are the things that this demon, the forces of darkness, are trying to influence this man to do? And while we certainly cannot come under the power of any sort of demonic force, we certainly can be influenced to do some very similar things. Just very quickly, let's just take a quick look at a couple of the things that this man, under the power of this demon, is compelled to do. The first thing I notice is that he surrounds himself with symbols of death. 
He lives in the catacombs, a graveyard, the tombs, where death was. Much like today, in the ancient times, these were places that were associated with death and decay. And this is the place that he finds himself living. He has supernatural capabilities, able to break chains and ropes and whatever it was that may, they may try to bind him with, has a supernatural strength within him. It's also interesting that he stays awake all night. You notice what he's doing in verse number five? He's cutting himself and screaming all night and day. He doesn't sleep. He stays awake all night. He had an urge to inflict pain and injury on himself, taking sharp rocks and using them to inflict pain, screaming there in the mountains. At the end of the story, we'll actually find, Mark doesn't tell us here at the beginning, but uh, towards the end, he'll tell us that apparently he was naked of some sort. He didn't have proper clothing. Now, certainly I'm not suggesting that you know, if you stay awake past like 11 o'clock, then you, you've got a demon you know, or something like that. Um, but we can see as we look at our culture, as we move further and further away from the Lord, and as we go further from the light of Jesus and his word and drift deeper and deeper into darkness, we begin to have some of these same desires and inclinations. Everywhere we go, what do we find? We find pictures and paintings and stickers and tattoos and all kinds of clothing with skulls and crossbones all over it. What is that? It's a fascination with death. It's a fascination with death. You got the majority of the country cheering on abortion, the death of the unborn. People today stay up till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning on their cell phones, watching movies and TV. Young people all over the place are hurting themselves with razor blades and dietary problems. My, my point is that these are things that are not part of God's design for us. What, what the devil and his demons want to do is, is they, want to, they want to hurt God's image. They want to move us away from God's design for us into oppression. But as we follow Jesus, Jesus puts in us not a love for, for things like this, but, but rather Jesus gives us a, a love and a passion for life, a love for God's creation. This man is completely overcome with more than demonic influence, but complete and utter demonic control under their power. Verse number six says, and when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him. And he crowd with, cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment we, me not. Now we'll see in just a moment, the people that are there in the region, they don't really understand yet who Jesus is. But you know who do under, does understand who Jesus is? The demons, the devils. These are entities that had seen Jesus in the heavens, seated on his throne. They know exactly who Jesus is as he appears. It's the same thing that you've seen. Almost all the demons that we encounter, they all recognize Jesus immediately for who he is. The Holy One of Israel, a God's Son, all of them recognize the identity of Jesus, and they're afraid. They're afraid. Earlier, one of the demons says, have you come before it's time to torment us? This demon says here, oh, don't, don't torment me. 
These demons know that God at one point is going to place a time where he is going to inflict them with his wrath and judgment. They know it's coming sometime or a number or, or another. And they plead and they beg with Jesus for mercy. Spare them. Don't, don't torment them, them, uh, them. Don't inflict them. Verse number eight, for he said unto them, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Can you imagine the suspense? The fear of the disciples as a demonic voice comes out of this man and says that? Learn that within this man is not simply one or two demons, but a whole legion of them. A legion is a military term that the Romans would use to describe a, a group of men, generally between five and 6,000 people. Thousands of demons are residing within this man. It's no wonder that nobody could hold him down. It's no wonder he couldn't be restrained with shackles and ropes and whatever it is that they had. We want to remember, in order to remove a spirit from somebody, they believed is, and I believe that it would be true, you would have to either have or invoke the name and power of a greater spirit. So here we have this showdown between one man, Jesus, and thousands of demons against him. But this legion of demons knows better than to even think about confronting Jesus, to even think about contending with Jesus. You see, they believe that, that even if, if you had the name of a, a spirit that was greater than any other spirit, you could put a lesser spirit under your control. And so here, it's, as, as, as some herdsmen are going to be watching, and as the disciples are watching, you've got a man with thousands and thousands of demons within him. You would think that there's a lot of power here. Whatever it is that's going to put this man under control, whatever it is that's going to cause this man and this legion of demons within him to be sent out and to be sent out is going to have to be immensely powerful. You would think that they would think the odds are in their favor. 5,000 against one? How powerful does Jesus have to be for these demons to not even want to have a conflict with him at all? Instead, they, they fall on their face and begin to beg and plead Jesus for mercy. They, they plead with him, don't, don't torment us. In fact, here soon, they're going to come up with a, another solution. The forces of darkness, in other words, are no match against God's spirit. Amen. Can I say, demonic forces, they're real. They're not just something that you read about in the Bible. They're alive and active even today. They may look a little different sometimes, but they're very much real. But you know what's amazing? Is that while they have so much strength and power, God puts within all of us his Holy Spirit. And you know what he tells us? That when the devil comes, the devil begins to try to tempt us and draw us away to evil. When, when the devil tries to place us back under bondage, the Bible says this, that we can resist the devil and he'll flee from us as well. He will flee because the spirit of God is much more powerful than any force of the devil in his armies. 
In Mark chapter number uh, 5, verse number 10, he says, and he besought him much, the demon, he's begging, he's pleading, he besought him much that he would not send him away out of the country. This is kind of a strange request. They're, they're saying, don't torment us and don't send us out of the country. They didn't have the green cards yet. No, I, I don't know what it was, but they said, don't send us out of the country. <laughs> Now, this is not a case study on demonology or anything like that. However, one of the things that it does appear is that there can be, based off of what this demon asks, some sort of attachment, some sort of a tie or an association with particular locations and regions. The pagan word for that would be haunted. I'm not saying there's such a thing as haunted forests and haunted palaces and houses and things like that. But these demon, demonic forces were for some reason drawn to this very specific location. Maybe it was because of the the catacombs and the, the cemetery that was there. But they don't want to be removed from the country, but they also know that Christ is not going to allow them to stay within this man. And so they come up with an alternative. And, 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 and other option. Verse number 11, now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea and There were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. Now, we could say a lot of things here, but one thing that I will say is that Jesus valued the life of this one man above the life of 2,000 animals. God cared about somebody that was made in the image of the Almighty God better than a host of animals. If Jesus' priority was on people and not animals, it wasn't on the environment. I'm not saying those are bad things to care about, but sometimes we care about things that are of lesser value more than the things that are of the most value. I'm not, I'm not trying, to, trying to take on anybody here, but some of us will... I mean, we'll spend hours and hours and hours doing recycling. We're adopting pets and all these things. You know, we love all these animals. We're feeding all the stray cats in the neighborhood, but we won't even cross the street to tell our neighbor about Jesus. You know what Jesus valued more than anything? Jesus valued people over even 2,000 of these animals. I I can't remember the numbers, but I, I remember reading this, this poll that went out and asked people if, if, if you saw uh, you know, in, in a river that you were passing by, a drowning child or a drowning puppy, which one would you save? You know what the majority of people said? The puppy. Why? Because people today don't value human life like they should. But Jesus here, way more than any of the animals, places intentional value upon human beings. In verse number 14, the Bible says, and they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil. 
had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. And they, saw, and they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. So, so those that were tending to these animals, the, the, the people that were uh, feeding these swine, these pigs, as, as this whole thing is transpiring, this whole thing is going on, they're, they're watching all of it. And after these pigs run off the edge of the cliff and all kill themselves, they begin to go into the city and they begin to tell people what's going on. And as they're telling people that, hey, this crazy thing happened, this, this you, you know, the, the crazy guy in the tomb, this, the, the maniac that's there, he, he, he's all of a sudden, he's changed. And, and then all the animals, it's just crazy. You've got to go see for yourself. And people start flocking down to the seashore. Evidently, it takes quite a while because he go, these, these people, they go and they, they tell everyone in the city. They go and tell everybody in the country land. They're telling all these people and they all begin to flock down to the shores to see for themselves what had happened. Jesus had completely saved this man. Do you notice the complete and immediate change that happened in his life? Everything changed. This man who was crazy, we call him the maniac for a reason, he was out of his mind, was all of a sudden at peace in his mind. He was in his right mind, calm, clothed. He was put together, sitting, calm. Jesus made an immediate difference in his life. You would think as people would look upon somebody that this had happened to, they'd be ecstatic, elated. This would be a time of rejoicing. Evidently, he'd been a problem. You don't try to chain up and bind somebody that wasn't a problem. Who knows what he was doing? But evidently, at least he was scaring them. Could you imagine, hey, hey, don't go to that mountain all night long. You hear him screaming and yelling, blood on the rocks. They're scared when they go to bury somebody because you don't know where he's going to be. This is the man who had caused many problems. They all knew who he was. He was no stranger to them. And so you would think as they they come down to the seashore and and they see him sitting there. And he's calm and he's clothed. There's there's been such a difference. You would think that they would say, this is a miracle. This this is wonderful. This This is amazing. The Bible tells us their reaction was the most peculiar thing. They were afraid. Why would they be afraid? Isn't that strange? There's a couple possibilities. One that is often put forward is these these people see what happened to the swine. They see that Jesus has just destroyed, or the maniac, or Jesus, the demons uh, altogether, had, had destroyed this livelihood for these people. Just killed thousands of animals. Guys, that would have been a lot of money. That would have been a lot of money. It seems as though this was their entire herd that had just stampeded off of a cliff to their death. And they're afraid, man, this, this guy, his motives are bad. I mean, he he just set somebody out. How are we going to recover from this? Maybe they just valued the life of 2,000 pigs more than they valued one of their own people. I don't know, but but, but maybe they were afraid because they saw what Jesus had done and, and the result with the animals, with the pigs. I don't 
think that's the most plausible solution though, or explanation. One of the reasons is because in verse number 15, this seems to be before they actually know what happened with the, with the, with the pigs. Now, we know that the, the herdsmen, they go out in the city and they tell people something. Don't know exactly what they said. But Mark words verse number 15 in such a way that makes it seem as though they didn't yet know about the swine. Verse number 15 reads like this. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And that's when they're afraid, when they see the man. And then verse 16, and they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. It seems as though they were afraid before they really knew what happened with the swine. I don't think it was the swine and the death of all these animals that made these people fearful. I think Mark words it like this to help us to recognize that they weren't afraid of that. They were fearful and afraid of Jesus. I think they were afraid of Jesus. Why? Remember I said it at the beginning. In order to cast out one demon, you have to have something stronger than that. You have to have something stronger than that. And in Mark chapter number three, just two chapters earlier, Jesus is performing miracles. He's casting out demons. And then the scribes come down from Jerusalem. And you know what they say? They say, we know where he's getting that power to do that from. We know what authority he has to cast out these demons. And what do they accuse him of using as his source of power? Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They say, I know this Jesus. He is only able to cast out these demons because he has, a, he has the greatest, most powerful demon. You know what I think these people were thinking? I don't think when these people came and they saw the man who no longer had demons and, and they saw Jesus, who they probably presumed had done this, I don't think they immediately looked at him and said, he must be the son of God. He's on our side. He's good. This, 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 This is the Messiah. I don't think they thought those things. I think they assumed he was a malevolent force. They didn't know what he was. They didn't know who he was, and they were scared of the force and the power that was within Christ. So why were they afraid? They were afraid because they didn't understand who Jesus was. They did not understand who Jesus was, which is why what Christ tells this man next is so important and powerful. Verse number 18, and when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. And so the people, they've come and and they see what's happening, they're afraid, and they, they tell Jesus, you've got to depart out of our coast. You, you've got to get out of our region. We, 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 don't, we don't want you here. We don't want any part of this. We, 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 we want this thing gone. And so Jesus, he gets into the boat. His disciples pack up all of their stuff, and this, uh, this previously possessed man comes up to the boat, and he begins to beg and to plead with Jesus, well, can you take me with you? I, I, I don't want to be left here. These people all hate me. My, my reputation has been ruined, and, and they're all afraid. Then they're not going to welcome me back. I, I want to go with you. 
You're the only good thing that's happened to me. But look what Jesus says in verse number 19. How be it? Jesus suffered him not. He says, no. No, no, no. You, you can't come with me. You, you, you're not coming. But saith unto him, go home to thy friends. And tell them how great things, catch this phrase, the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Jesus tells him, and I love pastor's message, and we're not going to re-preach it here, but about this man using his previous relationships and his testimony for the sake of the gospel. This man was able to use everything that God had done in his life as a light for everyone to be able to look and see the wonderful, miraculous, changing, transformation of, uh, transformational power that is in Jesus and the hope that he gives. In verse number 20, and he departed and began to publish in the Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Now, remember, in, in, in this whole region of the Middle East, that, that one little pocket, they didn't know who Jesus was yet. In the Decapolis, they, they, they hadn't yet heard there was nobody that had come and, and, and wanted to see because they didn't quite know who he was. And, and then Jesus tells them about the kingdom of God and, and it grows miraculously from something that was so little into something that's so great and, and nobody can understand how it was able to happen. And then what does he do? He, he, he takes them on a random boat ride all the way across the sea and talks to one person. One person. Can I say this? If we were going to go and we said, there's one city that needs the gospel, this is not the plan we would have gone with. We wouldn't go and just witness to one singular person. But not only is Jesus only witness to one person. He doesn't stay and try to convince everybody else that, hey, no, 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 you guys don't understand. Let me explain to you my side of the story. He doesn't do any of that. He gets in the boat, gets ready to leave. Jesus witnessed to one person. And not only does he witness to only one person, but he chooses the craziest guy in town. The one guy that's nuts off his rocker. You know what we would have done? If, if you had to witness to one person and that one person was going to be responsible to reach everybody else, who would you witness to? Like the mayor of the city or something? Somebody super influential? Somebody really well-known? Not Jesus. He reaches the guy that nobody wanted to talk to. The guy they were actively trying to avoid. The guy that doesn't even live in the city lives out there in the graveyard. That's who Jesus witnesses to. It seems so strange to us. You know what the disciples probably thought when they got back in the boat? This trip was a failure. And we, we wasted our time. We tried. They don't want us here. Only one person had change. He was saying, oh, man. The seed was just so small. It was just, it's just so little. Nothing's going to become of that. It's almost good for nothing. But you know what happens? As, as this man begins to obey Jesus and tell people what the Lord had done for him, 
and tell people of the compassion that God had had in his life, what is the people's response? And all men did marvel. This man is going to have a huge reach. This man, because of his testimony as a maniac, as a demonically oppressed person, is going to be in the perfect position to actually be able to reach a huge swath of people because they knew that his change was genuine. The rest of us, somebody tells us something like crazy happened, and we just don't believe it. Why? Because we can't verify it. Somebody says, oh, I went to this, I went to this huge preaching, preaching crusade, and, and man, you know, like, I, I, I'm able to, I, you know, I, I got my leg healed. And we say, my, it probably wasn't even broken. We just don't believe it because we can't verify it. Everybody knew this man was crazy. Everybody knew this man had demons upon demons. They'd seen, they'd seen supernatural feats. They all knew that what he was saying was true and that the change was genuine. This man's power, or this man's testimony was so powerful that as he began to publish it all throughout the Decapolis, the one place that nobody had yet gone to, in two chapters, in, in Mark chapter number seven, when Jesus finally comes back to the Decapolis, you know what's happening there? The people are waiting there for him with sick people because they now recognize who Jesus is. I also want to point out what Jesus tells us meant specifically to tell the people. Remember why they were afraid? They were afraid because they didn't understand who Jesus was. Is he good? Is he bad? Is he here to help us? Is he here to hurt us? They didn't know. They didn't want to take a risk on it. They want him out. But when Jesus tells this man to stay, he's very intentional with what he tells him to do. Verse number 19, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and this is what you should tell them. How great things the Lord hath done for thee. You know who Jesus says did this miracle? The Lord. This was the phrase that they would use to describe God. Ha kurios. This is God. Side note here. You know what Jesus is saying? I'm not just any man. This, th- there's not just a powerful demon in me. I'm the Lord. I am God. I, I, I am the God of the Bible that all these people worship. I am him come in the flesh. And I want you to tell them, I want you to help them understand who it was that did this for you. It wasn't the spirit of Beelzebub. It wasn't an accident. This was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord who did this, not because he wanted some, he, he had some twisted plan, but because he had compassion on me. He had compassion on me. And this man is able to go Help these people understand who, in fact, it was that healed this man. He wasn't just any mere man. He was the Lord. He was the Lord. And so as Jesus comes back, this whole thing changes because of the testimony message of one man. So you know what happens? I think that helps the disciples. Jesus is telling those parables. They're kind of confusing. They don't really understand what he means. And then they go and Jesus witnesses to one singular dude. And they think nothing's going to become of it. And then maybe just a couple of weeks later, maybe months, we don't know the time frame, but two chapters, and they come back and they see all these people that are now waiting for Jesus. I think they began to understand how the kingdom of God grows. It's not because of your power or my power. It's not because you're the greatest speaker, I'm the greatest speaker, you're influential, and I'm, no, 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 no. This whole thing happens because of God's power. 
I got two quick takeaways I want us to see. The, the first one is this. We got to go where the need is. We've got to go where the need is. I love looking at that map today and seeing all the regions all surrounding Jesus' ministry and all these people had heard. And the only place that doesn't hear it is exactly where Jesus picks that he's going to go. It wasn't random. Jesus was very intentional to go to the place where the need was. He was strategic, in other words. Can I say, we're commanded to take the gospel to every single creature. That doesn't mean we've got to do it randomly, okay? We should be strategic. We should be in the habit of identifying where the greatest needs are closest to us and furthest from us. That's what our open-door ministry is all about. It's about us looking around in our county and saying, where is there the least light? That's where we want to go. That's where we want to go. Can I challenge you? This year, I think every other month, we've got an open-door ministry outreach plan. You ought to be a part of that. Why? Because that is where the need is the greatest. I always get so, I don't know if it's convicted or what, you know, like, Will's over here in the Spanish, um, uh, their, their faith group over there. He's trying to learn Spanish. Why? Because he says, because there's a lot of people who, there's a great need there. There's a great need there. Pastor Chadell and I went out with other Gondermen. Man, and he pricked us right in the heart when he said, you know where the great need is in your, in, one of the greatest needs in your uh, community? The Sikh community. But we've got populations, yeah, further from us, Wasco, Arvin, Lamont, Tehachapi, all these places. But there are some right here in our backyard that have a huge, tremendous need for the hope that's found in Christ. And you know whose job it is to take it to them? You and me. And so we ought to go where the need is. The next thing, the second takeaway, is we should never think, what good would my little efforts do? What, what, what good would, would this little bit that I have to offer ever do? What, what impact could I really make? Remember Brother, Brother Mears when he came and, and rattled off all those numbers that I can't remember about how big the, the world is and how many people there are in the world and how long it will take to reach all these people and all those numbers and things. And sometimes we can be tempted to think, man, what, what good would my little efforts be able to do? It, it's not going to make much of a difference. And on the flip side, we think, well, if I don't do anything, it's not really going to hurt that much because my efforts wouldn't make a huge impact anyways. So sometimes we just don't do anything. And, and we can sit back and, and think that these, you know, the, the little effort that we can offer is not going to make a big difference. But that's the beauty of the way that the kingdom of God works. God only requires of us our obedience. He only uses us as the mouthpiece. He uses us as the trumpets to, to proclaim the gospel all around the world. It is God's power and God's working that begins to, to work in the lives of people and to do things that you never thought were possible. You never know what's going to happen when you give your little to the Lord and what he's going to make of it. This was such a tiny, little, insignificant drop in the pond of the region of Decapolis. One person? Nobody would have thought that would have made a difference. But it made all the difference. It made all the difference. And can I say, hey, you don't know what's going to happen when you witness to the person that the Holy Spirit's been pulling on your heart to witness to. You don't know what's going to happen. And here's the other thing. You don't need to know. Our job is to just obey. 
That's why Jesus says in the parable, we just plant the seed in the ground and then we just watch it grow. We obey, we sow the seed, but God gives the increase. God is the one who builds his church. God is the one who builds his kingdom. Our job is to simply obey. Not to be, not, 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 not to worry about well, how much of a difference. No, 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 no. Just obey. The spirit leads, obey. The spirit directs, submit. That's our role. And so what do we learn as we look at this passage? Well, I think we learn a little bit about who Jesus was. I think on one hand, we see that Jesus has the greatest power. That you could put 6,000 devils against him and they quake in fear and tremble because of him. That's how powerful our God is. He's also a God of compassion on his people. He's also a God who values his people, who cares about their needs. And at the same time, we also learn about our role in the proclamation and spread of his kingdom to obey. Let's pray.